Nicole Matthews, corporate America dropout turned entrepreneur and owner of The Henley Company, an event travel and lifestyle management firm. It wasn't that long ago that I was dreading my drive to my fancy corporate job each day or felt disenfranchised with the work I was doing. In 2007, I jumped off the corporate escalator and directly into the elevator of opportunity. Today, I'm an author, speaker, educator, and serial asker. I wholeheartedly believe that your life changes when you start creating your own opportunities and making big asks. Hands down, the business and life I have today is 100% the product of giving myself permission to design the life I want to live. It was always my dream to work at the Olympics, and by making a big ask, that dream became a reality. I now have multiple Olympic projects to add to my life resume. I created the Big Ask Podcast to share these best practices with you. Whether you're an entrepreneur hungry for revenue generating tips or an individual restless to make a significant change, the life you want to live could be just one big ask away. Get ready to be entertained by real life stories, no filter conversations, and inspired by the daily hustle. So let's get started. This is the Big Ask Podcast. Welcome back to the Big Ass Podcast. I'm Nicole Matthews, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful conversation today with a friend of mine, Mary Beth Storjahan, who's a certified financial planner and one of the smartest women I know when it comes to talking about money. So this is going to be a really dynamic conversation, which I'm thrilled to be having. So Mary Beth is the founder of Workable Wealth, which is a platform that provides financial education and empowerment to those in their 30s to 50s. And Mary Beth is also a partner and the chief marketing officer at Abacus wealth partners. So we're going to definitely talk about your entrepreneurial hat and then your partnership hat too, because that's been an interesting transition to watch you go through in the last uh, couple years. So first and foremost, good morning and welcome to the Big Ass Podcast. Good morning, Nicole. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So it's been so fun to watch your career develop um, over the last several years of you and I knowing each other um, kind of professionally. But um, I gave a small little background there, but, uh, but just expand on that a little bit. Kind of give us our, you know, your, your one minute, who's Mary Beth? One minute. Uh, okay. So, well, I'm a certified financial planner and I'm the founder of Workable Wealth. So I'm just incredibly passionate about educating women around their finances. That's how my entrepreneurial journey started. Um, I've been in financial services for going on 16 years now, I believe. So built my career up, launched my own business back in 2013. And then in 2018, I merged my clients uh, with uh, Abacus Wealth Partners and took a position on their executive team as chief marketing officer. So it's funny now people are like, what do you do? I'm like, financial planner, marketing officer. And they <laughs> you know, they kind of, you know, it's very unique to this industry only and what people, what they, they blend together. But um, I really, I speak, I educate, I write on financial planning topics, but I also am really passionate about unique ways to get financial information out there, which led to this, this marketing officer role as well. So where did your interest in financial planning first start? Is this something that you went to college for and that was where, where the interest was spiked? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, I grew up, my background is I grew up in a family, I'm um, full Italian, so I, I say my parents spoke loudly about money as I was growing up. Uh, <laughs> With their but, hands too. Yeah, yeah, hands yeah, yeah, very much. It was, uh, it was very paycheck to paycheck household. And so uh, I had to pay my own way through college. And I was, you know, I wanted to do international business. I went to, I went to San Diego State. And when I was there as my sophomore year, um, I, I had to work and I landed a job as a receptionist in a financial planning firm. And that's how okay. I, you know, I was just looking for an office job as, as you know, across the board. And I, it just happened that I got into a financial planning firm. And it was there that I began to learn and see clients coming in with all of their, you know, 
it was then, you know, it wasn't virtual then, it wasn't paperless. They had their their big stacks of paper and their their folders. They'd come in with all their stress and anxiety. They'd mm-hmm. meet with these guys. They'd give them a plan. And they, you could just see the peace of mind that they would have after their, their relationship began to build. So I became really interested once I realized that you can actually, can, you can control your money instead of it controlling you. So it was very much like money drove a lot of things as I was growing up and drove a lot of feelings and emotions. And so seeing that you could create a plan around it, I was 20 at the time and, uh, you know, and then I was, I was hooked. And so I actually, San Diego State happened to have a financial planning, financial services major. And so I switched my major from, I think it was like an international business, accounting, financial services. And then I, and then I stuck at it. So, yeah. um, and I, I built my career from there. So starting, I've been in the industry since I was 20 years old in college, but that, that's how I got into it was I kind of fell yeah. into it. So when did you decide to start your own firm and what is that process like? Are there certain regulations for your industry of, you know, and not everyone can just hang their shingle, I'm sure. So what, right. what is the process for your industry in particular to start a business? Lots of regulation. And I will say the interesting thing about um, the, we, we talk a lot about, about women waiting until, waiting until they feel ready to do things. Right. And so I, w- I started my own company in 2013. So I'd already had a decade of over a decade of experience in the industry. Um, and I, you know, I keep that in mind. I ran a financial planning department and then I, I decided to launch. And, and, but you know, the funny thing to me is like, I have like these young guys that come out of college, like how to you start your own firm. I'm ready to start my own company. How do you do it? And I'm like, <laughs> go get a job first to get yep. some industry experience before you try and help people with their money. But it's funny that like, and I, I hear a lot of, a lot of women reach out to me with so much background and education and they, they're questioning if they're ready. And I'm like, you're so ready. But these yeah. men call, like call me, you know, straight out of college and they're ready to launch their own companies too. And I'm like, I right. Say, you, but please go practice with somebody else. Um, so I was in the industry for 10 years. I had worked on, um, I worked at a small firm through college. And then I worked actually at um, Smith Barney and Morgan Stanley before the 2008 crash. So before they, they merged since. So I was okay. uh, on both sides there. And then I was in, I, I bounced around a couple of firms. Basically I spent 10 years working with older, um, rich people who had a million dollars plus of investments. They were, you know, 60, 60 years old. It was, it's kind of the industry niche is like those who are retiring. They have a, a large portfolio to manage. Mm-hmm. That was who I was being trained to work with. And I always wanted to work with my generation. And that was, so I had started writing, I wrote a blog under an alias for a few years and did different things. Uh, and then it was when my husband was deployed in 2013, the company that I was at here in San Diego was pushing me down one path to partner with somebody on his clients. And it really didn't, you know, it didn't sit right with me. Uh, so my husband, you know, he was deployed on, the, on a ship and we're like side via email that we're going to, that I'm going to launch my own company. So, so that was in March and I was up and running by August. Um, and so basically it's lots of regulations. You file with the state, you still have to go through the same, like get an LLC, get the tax ID number. Yeah. I had to hire a compliance consultant though, because there's lots of documents and regulation background checks. Basically. Okay. If you're handling people's money. Um, you need to make sure that you have protocols in place that you're not like money laundering. You're not actually taking sure. custody of their assets. So it was mostly, I mean, I was able at the time to start up the business, I think with um, like, like $15,000 was kind of like the investment, which was cheap at the time with everything, website, all of that stuff um, all in. But but it was about a six month process because California had to approve my registration. I had to have somebody create the documents, submit them, make the edits, submit them again. And then finally, I originally was planning to do it myself and was like, I'll just hire somebody. Yeah. And then it was up and running. Yeah. Yeah, So yeah, that that was kind of typical steps, but an extra layer of of security on top of the state. 
I, I think um, very much in, you're very much in line with how I think when I'm, when somebody comes to me and says, oh, I'm, you know, 18, 20, 23, and I want to start my own event planning business. And I am such a big proponent of go learn the industry on someone else's dime. Um, I mean, I was in the industry, I think, nearing 18 years before I started my own business. And even at that, you still question like, do I really have the the talent to do (laughs) this? You know? And, and I found that, you know, the event planning skills I I was very comfortable with. It was the running of the business. That's, that's the complicated part. I couldn't imagine trying to learn how to do both of those things at the same time, run a business and learn how to be an event planner. And so it sounds like in, you know, in your industry, that would be very much, you know, the same way as how could you ever start a business without having that experience first? Exactly. Because you were, and then you're worried about marketing and then also trying, you you have to grow your client book, but you're also trying to figure out how to actually do financial planning. And that was the biggest thing I always say is Mm -hmm. figure out your process, figure out the deliverable, the process you're walking your clients through, what is your service or offering? And then you start your business from there. Because once you have it down, you're going to tweak it, obviously, as you learn your avatar and your client niche. But you need to know what your clients or your customers can expect from your product and offering so you can explain it to them. Like that's marketing and sales. You can't sell if you don't know what you're doing, right? Right. (laughs) And you're fumbling your way through. And I think there's more risk factor there, too, especially if you're handling people's money. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's been that's I started in 2013 and and grew it. And that was the benefit, though, was um, my my job before. I launched Workable Wealth. I managed a financial planning department out here in San Diego. And I had a very, and I still had like a very strict, like very regimented financial planning process. So it's like very like, this is the steps, there's the meetings we'll have, here's what to expect. And so being able to, to tell clients what to expect and then to deliver on it and to like to teach them that language helps my business to grow because then they knew what to expect. I followed up on it. The story was the same every time. And then they could actually tell that story to people they were referring to me. So that's kind of how the business started to grow is just consistently delivering on the same process, the same yeah. steps every time. And, and then the brand started to grow from there. Yeah, that's great. And I want to circle back to also what you said about men, between men and women. You said the young men come to you and they're ready, fresh out of school and women with a lot of experience are still wondering, do I have enough experience? And we see that so much in just job um applying for jobs, right? A man yes. will read a job interview or a job description and he'll say, oh, I've got about 60% of that. So I'll kind of throw my hat in the ring. And a woman, I think it's something, it's staggering. It's like 85 or 90% before she feels comfortable in terms of, you know, the qualifications. Yes, um, exactly. And, and that your example is, is, is perfect with what happens between men and women in business, how men oh. tend to take more of a risk. Yeah. And I see, and I see all the time. That's one of my, one of my life goals. And part of me doing this merger with because was to be able to free up more of my time for like doing this this um, mentorship and and giving back to the industry as well as like lifting up women. I make my calendar open to any woman who needs to be mentored, like who needs to grow in the industry or is new to the industry, just so mm-hmm. I can give you know, give that extra level of encouragement or like yes, you are ready. You know, don't yeah. hold yourself back or you know don't be because the way I did things is also unique. Going fully virtual from the start, I didn't work in an, I didn't have like an office location. It was all online meetings, um, and so a lot of people, the, the general industry now is okay being online but still before this it was such a it's such an, an unknown new thing so mm-hmm. i just try to encourage women because i the ones that do come to me 
for the most part are ready. And, or if yeah. I, I had somebody reach back out, she reached out to me probably three years ago and she just reached out again, um, six, six months ago or before the pandemic started. So maybe like eight months ago. And she said, I reached out to you a couple of years ago. I, you know, we haven't talked in a long time, but you said I could reach out again. I did everything that you said I should do. Like, what do you think the next steps are? Like, so she got her CFP, she went and she's got the certifications, the job experience. She took the time to invest. And, and so I think there's just that, that response and that, that yeah. different, different personalities. And sure. Handling definitely. Things. Definitely. So after seven years or about six years of having your own six firm, years. six, six years, years of having yeah. your own firm, and then this opportunity comes with Abacus. And I remember so clearly you posting on Facebook that you were making that transition and how you almost had to... I don't think it was justifying it in your mind at all, but almost justifying it to the world that like workable wealth was not a failure. That's why I didn't, you know, this is not me leaving workable wealth to go get a job. Like I didn't fail at one. So now I've, you know, kind of have to like, okay, well you tried that now go back into corporate America. It, it, when I read it, it was so beautifully written of this. My thing has been such a success that now this opportunity has presented itself. And I thought it was just really interesting language. And for whatever reason that your post has stuck with me since you made that post. I mean, I remember it vividly um, and, and just how interesting it was that you sort of had to justify isn't the right word, but sort of position, you know, mm-hmm. how, you, why you were making this switch because it felt like maybe there was people in your circle or people around you who were sort of like, oh, she didn't really make it in her own thing. So now she's got to go back and work for somebody else. And yes. I thought you did such a wonderful job explaining that that's not the truth. It was because I was so successful that this opportunity presented itself. Exactly. And that's, and that's very much how I think as entrepreneurs, it's positioned. Like if you can't cut it, like you got to go back and get mm-hmm. like a job. Um, mm-hmm. And and, and that was, I did, I did it from some of the people in my circles, like, oh, entrepreneurship's not for everybody. And there, there's mm-hmm. stuff like there, I, I had a few comments like that. And it was really just like, it helped me understand like the, the mindset of entrepreneurs. And that's also what we're fed from social media. It's like this hustle, this drive, like you're constantly striving, you're constantly like trying to find the next dollar and do different things. And it's like, you know, even as a financial planner, I've worked with multiple clients who have sold their businesses and transitioned and they take a job and they sell their businesses to, to advise or do certain things. And it's really about like this journey and this path of mm-hmm. life fulfillment versus like having to run this company. And, and it, it's, it's all about like finding that internal happiness. Right. And that's yeah. what I've realized. Like workable wealth was, was successful, is still successful. And the website's still live. It's an empowerment platform, but yes, I think, um, you have to like, I had to, I, it was important to me to get of that messaging and say like, look, yeah. like, here's why I'm doing this. It's not that I'm selling out as some people would right, say, right. or, you know, that like, that this was part of like the plan. It was such a unique opportunity that was, that was really kind of crafted for me. Um, and, and I would, you know, financial plan army would have been crazy to say, yeah. you know, to say, no. and, and the thing was workable wealth was doing so well that either way I would have been fine. That was, I was in the position of, and you don't talk about that on the blog, but I was at this position. I'm like, either way it would have been okay. Both yeah. paths would have been fine. Workable wealth was thriving and like this, you know, so I could have, I could have said no to this and kept yeah. it going, or I could have, you know, did, did the transition and, and gone over here. But the, the thing that made me choose was I knew the direction workable wealth was going in. Like I knew like it would keep going and I could and I could keep it running I had already walked through the door and I could see it and I felt like I would always wonder what if I didn't if I didn't walk through this other door right I always would wonder like well what would that have looked like and what could I have done there and and knowing that is what you know and and knowing how I want to spend my time is what, what 
made me choose to, to make this yeah. transition. Yeah. So that's great. So I know you, um, you're working with your generation is important to you. Um, and so what, 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 where do you think we are failing as a society in terms of talking about money that it isn't sort of a, um, I, you know, in the minute I graduate from college or I sort of get into my twenties, I am immediately thinking about my financial planning. I feel like, you know, we, we still aren't having those serious conversations necessarily. Um, I was fortunate to grow up in a house that had those conversations. And so it's, you know, I've been building, you know, my retirement and wealth as, as um, you know, from a young age, but many people don't have those conversations and I'm sure, you know, first time clients for you have never had that conversation. So first question, I guess, is where are we failing as a, as a society? Why are we not talking more about long-term wealth planning? And secondly, what sort of your advice to those who perhaps haven't already gotten on, you know, on the train, um, yeah. you know, and, and where do they start? So, um, there's a couple, I think two big areas that I think we're kind of failing as a society. Um, the biggest thing for students right now, before they even go into college, that is where the conversation should be happening. Because I've found I'm getting clients now or people that are reaching out on the other side of college that are strapped with student loan debt. Mm. They've gotten, they've taken out hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans to get a job that's going to pay them 60 to $70,000 a year. Mm -hmm. The math doesn't add up. And so from a, from an educational standpoint, we're failing in actually speaking to these 18 year olds and teaching them how to crunch the numbers of like, okay, if you take out X amount of debt, here's what your payment's going to look like on the other side. Plus you're going to have rent, other things, even in just in your twenties. And so I'm getting clients coming to me in their thirties who still, you know, want to buy a home and and they can't, I mean, you know, we live in California. That's, that's hard as it is. Um, So I think we're, we're really feeling a society for like the, for the 18, 16 to 18 year olds, that they should be having the conversations, just understanding of like how the long-term impact of things, they're not going to necessarily like start saving into a Roth IRA at that point in time, but the decisions they're making at 18 to 18 to 22 that is impacting their full financial futures and people they're being tied to jobs they don't want like their futures are being negatively impacted by these things so um, understanding the unique ways you can go about getting education um, or to, you know going to community college first I think I think that's probably one of the one of the areas that we're failing is, is just that younger group to start yeah and then the second area that we're failing and talking about money is is not necessarily there's the educational component but it's actually I would say it's more of like the be- behavioral psychology component around money we don't talk about money because there's so much shame and anxiety around it and whatever we, I call them money scripts whatever money scripts we were exposed to as we were growing up so for example if your father was the one who always took out the credit card to pay or it was the one paying all of the bills, even though it was dual income household. Mm-hmm. But if your father maybe was the one that was always paying for things, you become, you see that, right? You see that mm-hmm. it's the man that's paying for things. And so maybe you, like you, you realize the child that, you know, that's either the role that if you're the son that you should play or the daughter, like you're, you, yeah. you might not have that much of an interest if your mother didn't take that much of an interest, or if there were purchases that were done that were hidden, those things that you see and exposed to the way that people handle money as you're growing up, you start to internalize those things. And mm-hmm. so you, if somebody else has shame, you can maybe internalize those shame or you, you have those stories. And so we don't actually talk about the role that money plays in our lives enough. And because we don't talk about that role or the feelings about money or the expectations that we have there for people also then don't take the steps to build their wealth. So if there is more conversations just around like, Hey, like, you know, I never saw my parents negotiate, you know, stuff or they were always behind on bills or, you know, I, the things that you see, um, if we talked more about that, 
that you, you start to relate with others. And that's how a lot of my clients came in when I talk about how my parents spoke loudly about money. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when they, my dad worked really hard, hold, held like three or four jobs at some point in time to, to help support us, but it was just paycheck to paycheck. They just didn't know how to manage money. Loving family, hardworking, didn't know how to manage money. So I didn't mm-hmm. learn from them. And when clients hear that story from me, that actually makes, they connect with me if they had a similar background. And some, mm-hmm. some of them reach out to me because of that. And so I think sharing the sharing of those stories, like that shame and that anxiety, the psychology component, I think is where we're doing a disservice because there's a ton of educational platforms and resources out there if you're motivated enough to go looking for it. But some people just have so much shame and um, and discomfort with it that they're not looking. And so we have to yeah. start with that, that psychology side of it and the money scripts and unpacking that. And then people transition to being ready for taking action. Yeah. It was interesting over the weekend. Um, so just a little background. My, uh, I've grown up in a house. My parents have been married 52 years. And um, sort of the, the money joke is that the family budget is his, hers, and ours, right? So my dad has an account, my mom has an account, and then there's a family account, right? And so that's always how it has been. And then when my sister got married, the same thing happened in her household too. So we've, I've, that has just been my norm growing up watching money that my mom was always very clear about the fact that especially my sister and I, like you earn your own money, you need to have your own money. Yes, of course you, you have a joint account and you pay, you know, collective bills and all, you know, the household and all of that, but, you, mm-hmm. but she never wants us to be in a place where we have to ask her husband, like, can I have money to go get a haircut or something? Right. Right. And we've seen that happen in other, you know, an extended family and stuff. So, so anyway, so, so that's, that's the background. So my niece called calls me over the weekend. She FaceTimes me and she calls me TT and she says, TT, I'm in my room full of, she's in college. And as she goes, all my friends are in, in the room. You know, she's got four girls in the room and she goes, can you explain the his, hers and ours budgeting to them? Because they all grew up in families where there's only one account. And so they don't understand why everybody has to have their own account. And so we had this like 10 minute conversation. Elise, my niece was facilitating this with the girls and I was talking to the girls in the room and I'm like, girls, listen, do you want to ask your husband for money to get a haircut? Do you want to, you know, have a girl's weekend that you don't have to ask permission for? Like all these different things. And it was kind of the first time I think that these girls had really been exposed to, wait, that doesn't happen in my household. Everybody's money goes into the same pot in my household and maybe mom doesn't have her own account and they were fascinated by the fact that that's how our family was raised and for us and and Elise growing up watching that you know modeling that behavior she was so like what do you mean your parents only have one account that doesn't make sense to me so it was this really just darling yeah. little conversation but so important that these girls were like this aha moment of like what do you mean there's another way for us to do it it was just it was perfect timing yeah. knowing I was going to talk to you love that that makes yeah. me so happy to hear Oh, yeah, so but yeah, I know. I mean, that, and that's it's just it's kind of like connecting and being exposed to these different thoughts of how things could be managed and and knowing what works for your family. And I have clients that do both. I have clients that put it all into one pot. I have clients who have the separate accounts, and it's really a matter of like facilitating that conversation, being yeah. like the neutral party of like what feels best for you. What are your family goals? Do you you know? And some people like I work for my money. I want I want to make sure that this is mine. We you know, and we figure out do you contribute percentages? You can contribute yeah. fixed amounts. So it's it, it's and that's why it's personal finance, right? It's personal. Right. To 
you. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out what works for your family. But yeah, there's so many ways to do it. And it's really just like thinking about it though. Like you don't have to do it the one way. You don't have to do it the way that right. your parents did it. And that's right. like, that's the biggest thing that we learn is like you can do, there's different ways to do things and you pick, yeah. you pick what's right for you. Yeah, no, exactly, yeah. exactly. The other thing you'd be proud of probably is that my, my mom is a big believer in the envelope system. And literally, so my parents have been married um, since my, they were very young. My mom was 18 when they got married and they, she graduated high school and then moved right away to college with my dad and moved into married student housing and like was a grown up, you know, overnight. And they used to cash his, you know, very small check. And then she would physically put that money into envelopes. Right. And so here they are now 52 years married, you know, wealth, you know, has, they've created wealth and, you know, they've managed their wealth very well. But to this day, my mom still puts money in an envelope in the safe and it's like marked fun or it's marked. So if, if the family's going out for dinner, like I'll see her go into the safe and she'll get out money out of her like personal ATM, (laughs) but it's worked so beautifully. And she's been such an, it's like, I've, you know, friends of mine have, have, she's given it as a wedding present to my, one of my best friends in college. She set up a whole little binder with envelopes for them just because she's like, you know, this is what I want you to do because our generation is so tied to credit cards and ATMs Mm -hmm. and not really understanding like how much money do I really have? Because as long as I can still keep getting money out of the bank, it must mean I have money in the bank. But you know, so anyway, yeah, my mom's a big component of the the envelope. I do do virtual, I I mean, I do virtual envelopes for our household and I have clients usually, you have a travel account, you have a savings account, Uh you have a home down payment account, you have, I have all of the online bank accounts that everything goes into. And so it's the virtual savings. And then, I mean, even in our household, we manage it that way. And like whatever is in the checking account is what we have to spend for two weeks. There's not really a cushion. Yep. There's like a small cushion in there, but it's there. Like that's our, our money to spend, but everything just gets funneled to the savings yep. long-term goals because that's, you know, that's, and you know, same thing though, but it, that's a lot of people don't do that. I'm very, I'm a financial planner. So I'm constantly in <laughs> spreadsheets, like trying to, <laughs> my husband needs to pull me away from them half the time. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I mean, that's the, it can be fun too. And I think if anything, it's, it's actually empowering and it's empowering. The more you learn to like find happiness and you realize, um, especially for young for your generation, you figure out what your goals are. I mean, what's important to you? Is it a lot of people talk about, for example, travel and experiences is a huge mm-hmm. thing from like almost all of my clients. Uh, and then you look at their spending though, and you're like, okay, well, I'm, you're going to Whole Foods. You're going, you know, yeah. you have a $500 a month gym membership. You have these things, but you mm-hmm. said that your, your goal is these experiences. So, but your spending says otherwise. So right. where you start to make adjustments. And so when people start to think about their values and the things that they really want out of life, it becomes easier to make those, those switches and to use like something like the envelope method and to, to start to yeah. allocate, but they have to be invested in like a reason to do it. When you tell somebody mm-hmm. to budget, just to budget, right. Like, habits typically aren't going to change. Right. Right. So the pandemic has probably been an interesting layer to the work that you're doing. Yes. Um, what a great reminder to people of, you know, the rainy day. We're not not just in the rainy day, we're in like the rainy season here. So, (laughs) right. So, um, have you had, you know, the panic calls from clients and, or are clients calling saying, no, we got to get serious about this now because this is a reminder. Yeah. I've had, um, 
You know, we did a lot of, a couple of touch bases. I had calls about the volatility, a few about the volatility in the market when like things were swinging up and down. It was mostly like, let's stay the course. But um, I, the, the thing that made me super happy about clients, because our clients are in their 30s to 50s, is like, are you sitting on cash? Like, can I invest? Can I invest my money? It's now, and so then I'm like, yes, now is a great, everything's oh, on sale. Now, you know, when markets yeah. are going, so I had a lot, I had those calls, which means like, you, you feel good, like you're doing your job when clients call with that. Like, you know, I have this extra savings that we're building up. Should I put it into the market for the long term? And you're like, yep, because you know you're buying on discount. So I had some of those calls. Um, I had a few like just wanting to make sure that they um, that they're okay. Like, are we okay? Like, here's the things that I guess, like people are worried about losing their jobs, losing mm-hmm. income. So I I didn't have like a. Uh, mostly like a check on the rainy day fund. Like is our rainy day fund enough? Do we need to do more? Um, so people kind of anxious about like making sure that they did have the boxes checked or not. Um, but most, most of the people who we work with are like, are good. They're on the right track. And, and you know, we've had a few that maybe have lost their jobs, but they've had savings. So there wasn't anybody who were like, I'm ready to do the work now because they've already been in it to do the work. Uh, but you realize like in the general public, the ones that are reaching out are the ones that are, that are not okay. Like, that, those yeah. are the ones who are like, okay, now I'm ready to do the work. Right. Right. That's scary. Exactly. I mean, there's, it's a lot. And I think that's the hard part too, because you see it um, as a financial planner, I see it, you see the, where the wealth is being created in a time like this and where the wealth is being lost in a time like this. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the divide is only getting larger. So yeah. that's, that's the biggest thing that I think is a, is a struggle uh, for me to, to, to kind of be part of, like we're, you know, we're in the business of, in general, the financial services industry helps wealthy people grow their wealth. And then, you know, being able to help those who need to have that foundation. And that, that's how I started Workable Wealth to begin with. Like mm-hmm. the people who can't afford, who don't have the million dollars to invest, who helping them. And that's where Workable Wealth kind of originally right. originated. And I know your husband um, is retired military, correct? He's, he's, retired? Uh, he's, he's not retired. He's not retired. Oh, he's not retired. He transitioned he's out though. Yeah. Transitioned. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so has, it would be interesting to know kind of what the um, lessons around money management are for the military. Like how much support are you, especially young military families getting in terms of their um, financial planning as well? So it's really different. So they had, um, you know, even as he was transitioning out, he went through like a basic, you know, one to two hour course, which was, you know, it's not enough. They, they do safety stand downs where somebody will come. I, I've spoken to squadrons and different people about money and they have some education, but for, um, I will say there's not, there's not enough financial education literacy, especially you know, my husband was an officer in the Navy. And so that was, that, there's one level there of income and different things, but for the enlisted folk as well. So different level of income, these kids are coming in at 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, they're coming to places like San Diego and they're unfortunately like, they're like preyed upon um, by like, you know, like car lenders and different mm-hmm. these interest rates and different, and different things. And that was part of my volunteer work has been like educating like this, this group of people around their finances, because they're also, they don't have 18 year old, they don't have financial literacy or knowledge, yeah. nor like mm-hmm. the, the desire necessarily. They're out on their own for the first time. So um, there are, there's tons of nonprofits and resources out there for them if they go seeking it. But, but unfortunately, a lot of them don't go seeking it. And so even yeah. in my wor- work with um, like wounded warriors and veterans, you know, knowing, you know, they, they get large, large payments if you lose a limb and different things. And sometimes those would go to like buy a car immediately. And you're yeah. like, whoa, 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 you gotta, you gotta turn this into a job and like it's a family yeah. setup. And so it's just different yeah. things. Um, but as you, tra- you know, it's, it was very interesting as my husband transitioned out um, being aware of the benefits of being in the military too, and the different pay, cause you have your, 
you have your base compensation, you have a housing allowance, you have like all of these different stipends that are taxed or not taxed, not to mention um, like we were living in California. My husband was a resident of Texas, so there was no state income taxes. So there's different like levers that military can pull, but it took me like, un, like I would took his LES statement, leave his, um, his pay stub. And I was like, anal- it took me analyzing it. And I really had to dig in as a financial planner to start to unpack and know the ways to maximize situations. And unfortunately, like, a lot of people don't know how to maximize yeah. the situations that they're in. Um, so I would say there's, there's work to be done. Um, and I would encourage people to, to definitely look online and to, you know, talk to their squadron leaders or their, their, um, yeah. whoever their, their superiors are, but there's, there needs to be more work and, and, you know, it's a whole nother thing. There's like too many nonprofits that are doing this work too. There's no one cohesive thing. So there's yeah. just lots of people doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> They're not coming together. <laughs> right. Room for opportunity there. So yeah. in the spirit of the theme of the podcast being the big ask, um, mm-hmm. is there been a time that you've had to make a big ask? And if so, um, if you're comfortable sharing what that was, what was sort of your process for, for, you know, ramping up to make that big ask? And then what was the outcome? Yeah, I will. Um, you know, I thought of two different things. So one, I mean, one big ask is I just negotiated like a pay increase at Abacus, but that was, you know, that's, it was very standard. And so I was actually thinking yeah. the one I want to share about is um, when I decided to sell or when I decided to merge with Abacus, what, what that big ask was. And um, so when I was already, I was connected to Abacus, I knew the president of, of Abacus. And so um, he mentored, he actually mentored me for 18 months. And um, part of the mentorship, like the group he was mentoring was like, he wants you for Abacus. He, and I was like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and they approached me. Basically, long story short, like it, I'm always wanting what's in, I want to know what's in your back pocket, right? Always know what's in your back pocket for like a rainy day, or just yeah. you know, you just want to know what you have all the cards out. And so for me, I'm like, if I was my own financial planner, I would tell me to have the conversation, just so you know. And so I actually started the conversation about potentially merging with Abacus, um, and I and it was me just merging in only as a partner, like coming in and but no executive role. And so uh, when we had that conversation, I said, no. Like after that, I was like, no, for a variety of reasons, also your marketing is awful. And I can't be aligned with the company whose marketing is awful. And so he said, you know, so JD Bruce is the president of Abacus. He said, well, would you, um, you know, want to come in as a chief marketing officer? I was like, well, that's interesting. So um, after a lot of back and forth, and as I mentioned before, like I had nothing to lose, right? Because I was already doing workable wealth was was staying. And so then it was kind of a matter of, so I started doing research, like, okay, what is the number that I would need to make this work? And then family, like flexibility, all of these things, like why were the reasons I got into business for myself? And so I was like, what is the, the market that I want to serve? What am I passionate about? So, you know, workable wealth and like that whole platform, make, making sure that stayed. So I started to create a checklist of like, if this is going to work, I did like a month of like of work of like what's my number I'm asking for what are my non-negotiables um and I I mean I'm telling you everything I went from like I want to be able to work from Italy like these were all like the dreams I had for myself yeah when I have my, for having my own company I'm like I want to work remotely from anywhere I don't want to have to so I um so I went back and it was I asked for a certain dollar amount I asked for um for, I asked, they put, wrote into my contract that I could work from Italy, like up to like four or five months a year. Um, wow. and, and so I also asked for, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to be on like after 5 PM. So the whole reason this actually all started was like, I wanted to be more around like present for my kids also, like if sure. I'm doing this, like these are the things that have to happen with yeah. it. So like you, I they won't, they won't expect me to be on like past 5 PM. Um, and then workable wealth was negotiated 
I maintained all trademark, all rights to that, like everything. So whereas they were coming into, typically they merge, like the whole company comes in and they get all the rights. I basically, I negotiated, I was like, it doesn't come. Like I maintain all creative control over workable wealth, anything that goes on the website still, like it can be a lead funnel. We can bring clients and advocates, but that is my brand only. Like you don't mm, own it and, and, and those things. And so the ask, what that was my ask. So I went back to it kind of like when you have that, when you have, and that was the opportunity it created. Again, like I had that, I could just stay on the path or, and, and we negotiated mm-hmm. and I, and I mean, all my contract, all of that, all of that happened. So, that's awesome. um, so it was a big ask and it was, you know, and it was when they met and they were really excited to bring me on board and, and knowing they were willing to make those, those concessions, um, you know, it, it made it a, a great deal. And yeah. I've been able to provide a lot of value there. And just now a year and a half into it, I'm able to do, to kind of get myself back, um, into the, you know, mentoring and speaking and, mm-hmm. and getting back on that circuit now because the pandemic hit as well. And, yeah. but, but that was a big ask for me. And it took a month of like, I just, what are my non-negotiables? What are, what am I willing to bend on? And what am I not willing to bend on? And, and knowing that and doing that prep and doing kind of the analysis of like, what, you know, what does a CMO make? Mm-hmm. And, and what, is, mm-hmm. what are my unique skill sets having been a CEO? And, and so being that I, I could basically have the best of both worlds. So now I own workable wealth and I get to do consulting or things through that. And then I, I get to contribute and I also, I'm a minority owner of Abacus as well. I own like two and a half percent of Abacus. So oh, I, you know, so yeah. as, as I add value to that company, like I get to, you know, it, that my wealth grows there as well. So there's, there's opportunities on both sides that I was able to negotiate. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it just speaks to just knowing your value, right? And knowing the yeah. experience that you brought to the table. And I think, like you said, just knowing that if this opportunity didn't work out, you were still happy with what you had. There wasn't a desperation that, and that's an important part, I think, where you weren't, you know, this is, we have to make this happen and I'll start to give away things that are my non-negotiables because, you know, my family needs a roof over their head or, you know, something yes. like that, where you start to sort of sacrifice, um, you know, what, what you would really, what, you know, what you you considered it a non-negotiable. So that's, that's a yeah. great story. And for me with big asks, you know, cause I'm, I'm also like a huge, I mean, I love the whole, the whole thing about big asks. I always go big. Like personally, I've always gone big throughout my career because I, and, and I think women don't go big enough. And I go big because I'm like, you know what? I, you know, your value, you know, that, like, they're not going to fire you. Right. So even when you're yeah. negotiating a raise, when you're going, if you go in for something like crazy, the worst they're going to say is no, they're not going right. to say no. And then send you out the door. They're not going to say no. Like that you also, if you're a value, if you know that you're a valued member of a team or that you are bringing value to the table, the worst they can say is no. Like that's, right. I mean, that's really how I usually see it as the worst case scenario. And like, I don't, yeah. so like if I ask like for something, you know, and like, the best case scenarios, they say yes. Like, yeah. so why would yeah. you know, there's not much to lose there. And right. so I just even recently with the right, I'm like, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to ask for all of the things, do the research, lay it out. And, yep. and if it's a yes, it's a yes. If it's a no, like, okay, well then what's the path to get to the yes later on? Cause even when you do the big ask, if it's a no, I'm like, okay, well, what would it take to get there? Is it a never? Is it two years? Is it six yep. months plus these things? Like it opens the door for the conversations to get you to the yes at some point in time, or, yeah. you know, it's a no and you pivot your career anyways. Right. Right. No, that's such a great example. Um, Just transitioning quickly. um, It's not uncommon for me to turn on the five o'clock news and to see your beautiful face being interviewed about things related to finances. So let's talk a little bit about building your personal brand. Um, How did, you know, uh, how did that first opportunity present itself? And then now you, I mean, you really seem to be the go-to person for NBC San Diego when it comes to to finances. And um, so it always thrills me when I see you, when I'm like, Oh, I know her. She's doing so great. Um, But, but more importantly, let's walk through kind of how you built that brand and, and how you became their, their, you know, kind of, um, treasured expert in that. 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, personal branding in general, it started for me in, in marketing when I'm doing that because it's really about knowing your avatar and your client niche, like understanding who are the specific people that you work with and how do you provide value and then talking about it. So when I started Workable Wealth, it was this, um, it was serving millennials and, and Gen Y only at the time. It was like this was serving my generation and there wasn't many people doing it. And the industry, my industry was, was speaking out against it for the most part, that millennials didn't want the advice. They didn't need the advice. They weren't willing to pay for the advice. And so when it came to my personal branding, before I went to mainstream media, I actually got vocal with, with my industry. I started speaking on panels and talking about millennials and reaching out to journalists within my industry for those publications. And I found that one of the ways to build your personal brand um, was for me for personally, it was Twitter. I don't find clients from Twitter, but I build my personal, my industry brand, like my industry is on Twitter. And that's where I engage in conversations with, you know, editors and, and reporters mm-hmm. and those sort of things. And so it's really understanding first who your client, because you can't, if you're a generalist, you don't really, you don't really stand out. And right. so being able to speak to the millennials and the Gen Y audience was a big a key component for me and really making money fun. So that was, that was part of that personal branding, but it started with the avatar work. And um, pers- and for consumer bot, uh, for NBC <laughs> in general, um, the way that actually came about was being on social media. So I did a lot, I was really active on social media in the beginning, and it was through Twitter. So I was it was probably six years ago now. Um, seven, yeah, six years ago now. Um, we he tweeted he was doing some report on. Um, little black dresses on sale. I think there's like some place that does like yep. sells little black dresses. And I think at the time I must've been, I must've been like a year or two into my business. I saw a tweet that he wrote about little black dresses and I responded to the tweet, tweet just said like, I just wrote a blog post on Roth IRAs and little black dresses. Like I was re- comparing, you know, investments, yeah. to like multiple, so whatever I was doing there. And I tweeted the article to him. Awesome. And just like out of no, out of the blue. And within like, you know, 72 hours, he reached out to me and was like, I, you know, I need to, I think it was for a Thanksgiving, it was for Black Friday, for a Black Friday mm-hmm. um, piece, and you know came to came to our condo downtown and interviewed me, and and he reached out. I mean, it's been six years now, and you yeah. know whenever he needs like so it's general. So there's certain like news stories that I become the go-to for. He'll send me some articles and like let's so we jump on, or he'll come to you know came to our, our house like pre yeah. pre pandemic, but um, now we just jump on Zoom and he records. But that that relationship over time um, has really grown and just stopped being a resource and being able to say like you know he he knows when I'm available. He knows, like, I can give quick bullet points. He'll send me the article. I'll give him ideas. So it's also about being really collaborative with those Mm -hmm. relationships. So when reporters reach out, because I'm quoted a lot in the media. So it's, it's following up, it's resharing anything that they quote me in, but it's also about being collaborative. Like, oh, have you thought of this angle? So some of the things, like, I'll... He'll interview me. I'll go on air. But some of the things that he, he says at the end, like will be things that I gave him, you know, so it's like, it's, the, uh, it's like you're, you're giving those talking points as sure. well. You're helping to make them like you're, yep. you're contributing to them as well. So I think sure. that's like that collaborative relationship is, is really helpful and, and it helps to, to build the personal brand. Yeah. No, it's great. No, you've done a, you've done a wonderful job with that. And it's fun to see also because you are of different generations. So it's, it's fun to watch you sort of educate him on, yeah. on some things. Not that he's not a smart guy, but it's just no, fun to so, see you so, being, you, you know, to have that different perspective, which I think he really appreciates too, because he knows he's, you know, there's a bit of a gap between the two of you. So it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun, yeah. it's a fun dynamic to watch. Um, and I, and I appreciate how much he values 
values, you know, what you, what you have to say. So um, yeah, it's always, it makes me smile every time I, I see you. In fact, I, I think, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I landed in Puerto Rico and I was dead tired from a flight. So I turned on the TV as I was just kind of getting ready to take like a day, you know, a day nap. Cause I'd had a, a, a red eye and um, one of the NBC affiliates had pulled your, your segment. Oh. And all of a sudden I'm in Puerto Rico and I see your <laughs> segment and I'm like, Oh my God, she's everywhere. You know, that's what's yeah. so that's, cool about the media, right? I have like yeah. friends in Florida. I was like, I was eating in like a taco shop and you popped up on the screen in the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, Oh, it's great. So yes, exactly. It's, it's fun. And it's like, you don't know what happens to it afterwards. Like I know it right. airs in San Diego and then it goes poof and it goes, and right. it kind of goes out into the world. Exactly. That's the really fun part about media too. I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to it, but I, I really yeah. like that. And that's for me, again, it's the, the general education and the making finance fun. Like that's, that's the stuff that's like, it's more basic kind of knowledge, and, but yeah. it's, it's the reach that you can get out of that and the like mm-hmm. impact people in their homes. I love that, that aspect of yeah. it. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, um, tell us very quickly about your book. It's called Work Your Wealth, Nine Steps to Making Smarter Choices with Your Money. So yes. um, when uh, that's been out a few, years I believe yeah. now right mm-hmm. and yeah. um and so kind of the general the general um lessons in the book are what the general I mean it's, it's really laying the foundation for getting started with your money so it goes back to again setting those goals understanding before you know I talk about like putting your money where your heart is so understanding what you value what's important to you and then it goes through I mean it's your basic it's like a starter book for finance and so I, I definitely if you see the book there's a big gold glittery dollar sign on the front of it. So it was like very targeted towards like younger, like women just giving yeah. them like making money fun. So it's about handling debt, cash flow. It talks a little bit about investments, but not too much um, credit cards, like your um, net worth growth, et cetera. And so basically from there, it lays the foundation through nine steps and it answers questions at the end too. Like how should you handle student loans or how do you save for a down payment? Yeah. Those sorts of things. Right. And available on Amazon and all the It's places. all available on Amazon. Yes. Exactly. Awesome. Great, great, great. Okay. Well, you have been the easiest to talk to. So thank you so much for making this so super fun. Um, We end every episode with um, our rapid fire questions. So this is just, again, to continue to get to know you better. Um, No judgment, no right or wrong answer. Okay. So here we go. Title of your lifetime movie. These were the days of our lives. Okay, perfect. (laughs) If you could change places with any celebrity right this minute, who would it be? Ooh. uh, Ooh. A celebrity. Jennifer Aniston. Perfect. Okay. When do you feel happiest? Um, Ooh. Somewhere where it's peaceful and quiet. There's scenery and I have a glass of wine in my hand. Great. If you were running for politics, what would be your biggest campaign promise? Biggest campaign promise. Ooh. Oh, God. God. Basic human decency. Yes, let's start with that, shall we? Educating on basic human decency and kindness. That's all. Right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Ultimate dinner party. Which four guests do you invite and why? And they can be like a real person, living, dead character. doesn't matter. Ooh. I mean, just because like fangirl status, that might be the reason to cross like the board. Michelle Obama. Okay. Um, oh my, Glennon Doyle. Okay. Yep. Untamed. Uh, yeah. Untamed. Uh, best, best book oh, of 2020 by far. I'm clearly like surrounding myself. Um, yep. <laughs> my Beyonce. 
for sure. Beyonce. Um, and what was that for? Yep. Brene Brown. I love it. Okay. I might, I might awesome. change it afterwards, but those are the four right now. That's just okay. It's a good, that's just a good like start. powerful women, just because powerful women. That's probably. Yep. I love it. <laughs> I love it. All right. Right this minute, you have to get a tattoo. What do you get and why? Mm. Kids names and or some sort of inspiring quote. Don't know, but I am currently shopping. Okay. <laughs> okay. Kids names. Love them Is there- forever. Inspiring motivating message yes is there a is there a tattoo envelope in your spreadsheet there's, a, <laughs> there like a, there's like a there's a pinterest board though i'm constantly looking i'm like should i what should i but then like i'm always figuring out like location yeah so. perfect okay um biggest pet peeve in business biggest pet peeve. oh my gosh not not knowing what's happening with your money biggest pet peeve i work with so many small business owners like do not so for, i guess for me it's like if you don't know your books like there are people okay. who are like, I made seven figures. I'm like, but did you make seven figures net or gross? Those yeah. Are, those are it. probably my, my pet peeves. Okay. <laughs> what is your wish for the next generation? Oh gosh. Just practicing empathy and kindness and just doing better than us. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Do, do it. Yeah. Do much better than us. Thank you. When did your light shine the brightest? Um, stuff like this, getting to talk about money finances, women, like any type of powerful women, educating women, inspiring women that I just, that lights me up. That's like, it's my life's work and I know it. And that's like the best part about it. It's like knowing that's what I want to do. And (laughs) yep. Nobody better at it than you. Had all the money in the world, I'd still be doing this work. So that's awesome. Good for you. All right. Last question. What is your big ask, either personal or professional right this minute? And how can we help you? Big ask is to take one small step today with your finances. One small step, um, whether it's you know doing work and figuring out what some some goals for yourself, looking at your cash flow, understanding you know setting up a retirement account, just starting to lay the foundation. One small step with your money. You're awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much. It was made my job very easy, and and Thanks, I just Nicole. I love your passion for the work that you're doing. It's changing lives, and it's making particularly women better and. Um, with their finances and just better about designing the life they want. And that's important. So thank you so much. Take care. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Ass Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe to and share the podcast with your friends. And be sure to connect with me on social at Miss Nicole Matthews or at Big Ass Podcast. Until next time, let today be the day you make a big ask. Big Ass.